finishing up from chapter four. In some ways, uh, it may feel a little repetitive tonight uh, because I've made reference to, to the end chapter, chapter four, numerous times uh, in the, throughout the preaching through Jonah. Uh, it's interesting to me, and I've really, it's really been a struggle to try to preach uh, from, a, from a text and not leak over into the other because you almost have to consider the story as a whole, but we'll read uh, chapter four tonight and then come back and I'll just share a few uh, thoughts and observations tonight. But so we know we're kind of at the end of that. We cleared this morning or we spoke this morning in regards to chapter three, uh, the outcome of God's mercy for the Ninevites was God's relenting in the calamity that had been forecasted for them uh, in the end of chapter four, three. And so it's kind of like a, an epilogue, really, in some ways, chapter four goes beyond, but he picks up, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a, warm, a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up and God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so they became faint and begged with all of his soul to die saying death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have had compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand as well as many animals? And it ends uh, with a question mark. And we'll, we'll kind of get to that. So it's really, really a striking uh, end to this particular book of Jonah. In fact, in fact, like I said, it's really sort of an unexpected epilogue here. I mean, you think about this, and Nineveh repents, God relents, verse, chapter 3, verse 10. And we would expect to hear something along the lines of this. And, and Jonah rejoiced and extolled the unfathomable riches of the wisdom, power, and mercy of the Lord. And then we'd move on to the next prophet. Uh, so it really is shocking uh, in, in the very next verse of chapter four when it says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. So Jonah was upset about then. That's what might've been Jonah done that, but that's not what happened. In fact, the displeasure of Jonah is indicated immediately on the heels of the mercy of God going out to the Ninevites, mass repentance, citywide repentance in sackcloth and ashes and God uh, recognizing the repentance of those and relenting from the calamity he had forecasted. So there's been a, an, a 
an amazing display of the mercy of God here, and you would think that the prophet of God would rejoice, for God has manifested his glory in Nineveh. So it's really quite shocking to read, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Notice as well with that, that his displeasure uh, really, uh, really escalated to anger and later on even to despair for his very life. And I thought about, think about what's being said here. Uh, it, is, uh, it is essentially Jonah saying, if I, if I read that right, Jonah is essentially saying that what has unfolded and transpired here is not to my pleasure. I am displeasured by, the, by it, he says in the beginning of chapter 4. The it, I think, is God's relenting from the calamity. But, but he don't know yet because the 40 days hasn't passed. In fact, later on, he's going to go sit to the east of the city, and I think he's deliberately going to wait the 40 days. His intention is to wait the 40 days and see if, in fact, God will eventually destroy the city. So right now, he doesn't know that God has not fulfilled this or this decree that he has that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days. He don't know that yet. But, but he tells us very plainly here, the writer here does, that it was a displeasure to Jonah that the Lord seemed to have relented in his forecasting, forecasted calamity upon the people of Nineveh. That really is quite striking. In fact, I wrote it like this in my notes. It is as it were Jonah felt robbed of his pleasure. He becomes angry. An anger without any justification then becomes almost like a cancer in him in the heart of Jonah, which makes it life itself become burdensome to Jonah. He cannot bear, uh, you think about this, he cannot bear the fact that his pleasure, which would have been the destruction of Ninevite as God had forecasted, did not or did not seem to be coming to pass. Like I said, it's interesting because he don't know yet it's not been 40 days, so he don't know. But what he does know is what he observed when he went into Nineveh and began to preach. And so he, he witnessed something there that disappointed him. He was dis, dis, displeasured by that, displeased by that. Jonah, it displeased him, and, and he became angry about it. And that's striking to me is that his displeasure now turns to anger. Uh, you would think you would think that it would say, well, it wasn't what I anticipated and knowing the wickedness of the Ninevites and, and their opposition and their threat to my home people, my home country of Israel, I wish, I wish God would have just brought the destruction and he could have eliminated them as a threat for us. And so I'm kind of disappointed, but his disappointment escalates now and he's angry. He's angry. In fact, it's reminiscent of God's confrontation with Cain and Abel, and Cain particularly when he says, why are you angry? He says later on to, to, to Jonah here, do you have a good reason to be angry? He's angry about this. And so angry, in fact, that I think it becomes a thorn in his own soul, and he's despairing to the point of life. I read one commentator this week that said, that uh, they felt like that Jonah was what he was upset about is God had made a hypocrite. God had made a liar out of him. And he went into Nineveh and proclaimed with boldness the great decree of God of the destruction of Nineveh. And now Nineveh is not going to be destroyed. And all of Nineveh are going to think the Jewish guy came in and told us a lie. And to me, that's so, that's self, so, so self-centered. 
centered. He, he didn't tell them a lie at all. He proclaimed the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. And God used that as an instrument to bring about repentance in Nineveh. Jonah is completely justified in the declaration of the word of God into Nineveh. God is in charge of whether to bring that to pass or not. Jonah is justified in my sight in the fact that he proclaimed the word of God as God had instructed him. So I don't buy the fact that Jonah felt like he was going to be, going to be embarrassed because Nineveh didn't destroy it. I think it was much deeper than that. I think he had a hatred for the people of Nineveh. And he felt that God was, God, in order for God to be just, they ought to experience their own destruction. So that's the, that was the source, essentially, of his, of his displeasure, was God's relenting. It's interesting, but he knew, he says in this passage, that he knew uh, this thing about God. He says in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I know that. I know that. And like I say, it's interesting to me that the 40 days hasn't passed, so he don't have any real assurance uh, that, that the judgment's not coming. But one thing he does know, he knows God is a gracious and compassionate God. And he knows that when he went into Nineveh and began to preach, that the people responded to that and that that mercy was indicative that God was going to exercise that very compassion. So I think he's already angry, even though the 40 days hasn't passed, because he's got enough sense to know that where the mercy of God is at work, the deliverance of God is at hand. And that's not what he wanted. That's amazing to me. And one of the reasons last Wednesday night that I emphasized the, the, the extraordinary grace of God and mercy of God at work in Jonah's own life is because he's now, now he's in the context of having been a recipient of a similar mercy and being angry that someone else was a recipient of a similar mercy as well. That is just amazing. And it does not seem to fit with the end of this book. With the repentance of Nineveh, God's relenting from his calamity, this seems completely inconsistent. You would think the prophet of God who knows God and knows he's a compassionate and, and gracious God and has relented in concerning calamity ought to rejoice because the mercy of God has been magnified in a, in a city of 120,000 people. Man, he is about as opposite of that as you can get. He's angry about it. Even angry to the point of wanting to die. I don't even want to live knowing this. I mean, I don't know how deeply his resentfulness or hatred was for them or, or what he understood about God that he felt that was somehow uh, dis discarded in this context. As I said in verse 2, there was underneath all of this, this truth that Jonah knew. I can't pre press upon you how important I think that is to this. Uh, it is really amazing that he knew this to be true about God. It's not as though he knew God as a righteous and holy and just God who exacts uh, judgment upon those who defy his rule. It's not as though he only knew God as that. He acknowledges, God, I knew that you were this way. And so it should not come to a surprise to Jonah if God shows and acts upon that that thing that he knew about God in this instance. But that's what he's upset about. And that is just amazing. amazing. In fact, you see his confession there 
in verse 2 in regards to that. He says, I prayed to the Lord and I said, please, Lord, was this not while I, what I said while I was still in my own country? This was stunning to me. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Uh, to forestall that. That's why I fled. So now we know the source or, or, or the root of why Jonah fled. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites, as I've read some people say. He wasn't afraid that he'd get his head cut off if he went into a, such a wicked city and proclaimed the word of God. Had nothing to do with that at all. Jonah is confessing here, I fled to Nineveh to forestall this. Now you look up that word and the definition of that word and then you make application and, and, and insert that into Jonah's reasoning here. The, the definition of forestall is to prevent or obstruct an anticipated event or action by taking action ahead of time. Now insert that definition into Jonah's explanation here. This is what I said when I was my own country. I fled to prevent or obstruct what I anticipate you are about to do in Nineveh. That's why I fled. That's stunning to me. Number one is that you've taken to yourself in that attitude, you've taken to yourself the superior authority in regards to where the distribution of the mercy goes. That's my prerogative. And even though you are God of the universe, and even though I know you to be a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and relenting concerning capacity, I think my decision here would be better. Therefore, I'm going to obstruct or to act in such a way as to, as to thwart what you intend to do in Nineveh. I cannot, that is just stunning. And you may hear that and you say, well, this is a prophet of God. How can this be? And my question would be, how could it be in you? Because don't we do a similar thing when we decide that there is a certain segment of humanity that is beyond salvation, that is deserving of the full justice and wrath of God? Don't we, aren't we doing essentially the same thing? Because we would say like Jonah, we know he's a gracious and compassionate God, long-suffering and, and relenting concerning calamity because he's done it in our lives. So we know the same thing Jonah knows. We also know he's a just God and his wrath, if it is poured out, is just and God is holy and righteous in his judgment against sin. But in this particular instance, Jonah is saying, I think God that you ought to act it in your righteousness over here and not act it in your compassion. So therefore, I'm going to try to obstruct by my fleeing as though God were not able to extend his mercy without Jonah. It seems as though Jonah in some ways had a very highly exalted view of himself here. As though God's mercy and God's acting in behalf of Nineveh was contingent upon Job's or Jonah's cooperation. It is not. It is Jonah's blessing to be used as an instrument of God and to behold the glory of God however he chooses to manifest that. Whether it is in condemnation and destruction or whether it is in mercy and relenting. That would have been Jonah's great pleasure to forestall this. To me, to me, that itself, does that not magnify or intensify the, the grace and the mercy that Jonah himself experienced? I mean, when he says, I knew you to be this way, 
And this is why I did not go to Nineveh because I anticipated that you were going to be this way to Nineveh and I don't want Nineveh to have that sort of mercy. Meanwhile, I just got out of the belly of a fish. I just, I just was rescued from the depths. I just was pulled out of the darkness of the depths into the light, spit back out on dry land and, and survived being swallowed by a fish three days and three nights dwelling in there and have survived to tell the tale. I am a wholehearted recipient and glory to God for his mercy to me. But I don't think that same mercy ought to be extended to Nineveh. Therefore, I'm taking to myself to thwart you, O God, of the source of my mercy and deprive Ninevites of mercy, of the very same mercy that I had. So Jonah's response here magnifies the mercy that he received. I mean, it's stunning to me to think about that. I've talked about the parable that Jesus told about the servant who was forgiven this great debt and then went out and demanded payment for someone who owed him a small debt and his lack of consideration of the extraordinary mercy that he himself had received and then demanded of another. And over and over, you see that. In fact, in many ways, I think that was the confrontation with the Jews. They had so narrowed God down and their Messiah as their possession along, even though from the very beginning they were forecasting and prophesying that the gospel and salvation would go out to the nations, even to Abraham. Through your seed, the nations will be blessed. Not just the Jews, the nations will be blessed through your seed. From the very beginning, God is forecasting that the gospel and the, and the sufficiency of the blood of Christ and the sacrifice will, be, will purchase a mercy that will reach beyond the Jews themselves, God's chosen people, and reach out and bring a people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation into the kingdom. But they had narrowed it down. It's as if though they wanted to be a lifelong uh, 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 heritage of having been recipients of the mercy of God and yet deprived the Gentiles of that very thing. You think about it, the Jews and the mercy that they experienced. In fact, some people believe that Jonah here is a type of Israel who, was, who has had this choice place, this choice position through which God would grant great mercy to them and through them they would proclaim the same mercy to the Gentiles. But you think of the mercy the Jews en enjoyed. I mean, they went into bondage in Egypt and God delivered them out with a mighty hand and fed them 40 years in the wilderness, provided water and sustained them. Their clothes, it says, didn't wear from their bodies. God provided everything day by day for Israel. They were the, they were the, the conduits, as it were, for the mercy of God to be poured into their life. And Jonah was a descendant of that very people who had been all their to all their heritage recipients of the mercy of God, even back to Abraham's calling, even back beyond that. And here is this one coming from a heritage of having received such, such depths of mercy, looking upon Nineveh and saying, I left here to forestall their getting any mercy. I left to interrupt your intentions, Lord, to, be, to demonstrate that you are a compassionate and gracious God to these people. That alone should be a warning for all of us, all of us who are recipients of the mercy of God and the recipients of grace. It just magnifies. Uh, verse 4 as well is striking, but it's a penetrating question from God. But you notice it's unanswered here. Are you angry? Are you angry with a reason? 
The Lord said to him, do you have a good reason to be angry? I, I kind of paraphrased that this way in my notes. Are you angry? Think about this. Are you angry, Jonah, because I demonstrated myself to be exactly what you knew me to be? You're upset because I have, I have lived up to what you believe me to be. A gracious and kind and compassionate God, long-suffering, one who relents from compass, uh, for calamity. You knew me to be that kind of God. And now you're angry because I've manifested you're right. I am that kind of God. And no wonder there's not an answer. That's a contradiction. That's a direct contradiction. I know God to be this, and I'm angry because he is. That's what he's essentially saying. In regards to other people. Oh, I'm thankful he's that in regards to me and my people. But I'm not, I'm not thankful at all. In fact, I'm angry because he has demonstrated himself that to be, to be that to these people as well. And they are, the implication is they are undeserving while we are deserving. That is just not true. He loved them because he loved them. God chose Israel as his people and he chose that through Israel, the Messiah would come and the fountainhead of the mercy that would provided for Israel and their calling would be extended out to the Gentiles and they would all be brought into the family of God by the same fountainhead, the mercy. Yes, Israel had great privileges. The writer uh, Paul says of that they have many great advantages. They are of the covenants and so forth. They have a great high exalted position <clears throat> in the economy of God. <clears throat> But that doesn't make them deserving of that mercy. That makes them a conduit and an instrument of that mercy. And that mercy is going out in this context to the Gentiles, these wicked, vicious, violent Gentile Ninevites. And Jonah don't like it. And he's upset about it. So God leaves him with this question, are you angry or do you have a good reason to be angry? I, I, think, I don't think that was rhetorical, but I think it was a question designed by God for Jonah to penetrate or to, or to evaluate his own heart. Is there a reason, is there a good reason underneath your anger, Jonah? Same with Cain. He got angry when his brother's sacrifice was received by God and God says to him, why are you angry, Cain? God knew why he was angry, exactly why he was angry, but he wanted Cain to investigate what is it is that is the root of your anger, Cain? And I think that's the intent of the question here for Jonah. Do you, are you angry for a good reason, Jonah? Well, Jonah doesn't answer. And in verse 5, rather than answer, then Jonah went out from the city and sat at the east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. As I said, I, I think when he went out to sit there, I think his intention was to sit there 40 days. I'm, I'm going to see. I know it looks like things are going the way I don't want them to, but I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to wait. And I'm going to see if in the end of 40 days, if God in fact does destroy Nineveh. I want to be here if in case he does, because I want to rejoice in that moment because God's holiness has been exalted there or vindicated in some way. So I think he had every intentions of waiting this thing out. Yes, everything looks to me like God's relenting and I'm angry about that because I know what mercy looks like in action and it produces repentance and usually where there's repentance, God relents. So I know that God is this kind of God and it looks to me like God is acting in that way towards the Ninevites. But just to be sure, I'm going to set up camp east of the city and I'm going to wait and see if in fact God does in fact destroy it or if he in fact fully relents here. So that's Jonah's plan. 
I think his plan probably ought to have been, why am I angry? Do I have a good reason to be angry? Maybe he should have set up camp and meditated upon that question. But he seems as though he's setting up and he says, I will do this until I see what happens. And that's why I think he was going, he intended to wait the 40 days. So he made him a shelter, verse 5, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And so while he's there, uh, I don't think this was very far extended. In fact, the indication, it was in, within a couple of days here, these events transpired. But his intention, I think, was to say there 40 days and see. So verse 6, so the Lord, God, appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah. By the, by the way, uh, the, second, the last message in this may be um, just the, the power of God and the sovereignty of God manifest throughout the book of Jonah. And I was telling Hope, I said, uh, God appoints great uh, giant fish and little bitty worms and plants. Everything is subject to the, to the appointment of God to accomplish the purpose of God. Here, a plant is appointed. <laughs> it didn't just happen it didn't just naturally grow there and just a coincidence. God made an appointment. There was a plant nearby where Jonah set up camp. And it had been germinated there in the ground perhaps before time. And the timing for its sprouting and growing and rapid growth was directly in the hands of God. It is an appointed plant for this purpose in history. It's going to rise up and it's going to die. And that plant goes into history never to be seen again. But it had an appointment this day, and its appointment was to grow up over and beside his little shelter here. And he sat under the shade of that, his shelter. And so God appointed this plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him. This is amazing, to deliver him from his discomfort. I mean, contrast that or juxtapose that to what God is delivering Nineveh from. The fullness and the, un, the outpouring of the wrath of God due their wickedness. That's what, they're, that's what they're facing. God's merciful and brings about repentance through this mercy. And there is repentance and God is relenting now from bringing that judgment upon them. And this plant, oh, he goes out of his way to say, and God raised this plant up and it gave added shade. And, and it, it was to deliver him from his discomfort. He's hot. It's hot out here. And I love this passage. And Jonah was extremely happy extremely happy about the plant. You see the author here laying this out alongside of Joe Jonah's position in regards to the Ninevites. He's angry. He's angry because God is relenting and repenting is happening in Nineveh and the wrath of God may not be poured out upon these wicked people. And then a plant grows up and provides some momentary light comfort in regards to the heat of the day. And he's thrilled about that. You see the ridiculousness of Jonah's position. Do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? The plant is almost uh, given to demonstrate to Jonah, no, you don't have a good reason to be angry. You're wrong in being angry, Jonah. But not Jonah, not at this point. He's extremely happy about the plant. And, and perhaps if it would stop there, 
Jonah could have gone right on, waited his 40 days, seen that God wasn't going to destroy Nineveh, and he could have gone on resentful and bitter and tried to learn the lesson the rest of his life. But no, God is not going to leave Jonah where he is because just as God raised up this plant and appointed a plant, he appoints a worm. Verse 7, I had this imagery in my mind of a worm just doing what worms do during the day and suddenly abruptly stops what he's doing and hears the word of the Lord somehow or the Lord directs this worm and the worm starts doing exactly precisely to the T what God has designed the worm to do. So he appoints this worm and when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant. This wonderful joy-giving plant got attacked by a appointed worm and it withered away. And when the sun came up, God appointed, not to match that, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that it became faint. And he became faint. And he begged with all his soul at this point to say, death, I want to die. Death is better to me than life. He already wants to die because he didn't get his pleasure in regards to the destruction of Nineveh. And now it's intensified. He, he went to see what would happen and he built him a little shelter and God provided shade and he thought, probably thought, thank God for the mercy of the shade and he was happy about the plant and then God appoints the worm and, and now the plant's gone and the shade's gone and not, not only that, but the wind gets up and it's blowing a hot wind and it's killing me out here and I'd, I'd rather die than to endure this sort of discomfort. And Jonah's upset now. He was happy with the plant but now he's angry and wanting to die even. It's better than to me, than he says, than life. And then God brings this to a head and he says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And I love this. And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. You better believe I've got a reason to be angry. It's hot out here. This plant was providing what little shade I had. There wasn't an east wind. Yes, you better believe I'm angry about the plant. That's the implication here. Do you have a reason to be angry? Jonah says, you better believe I have a reason. When he asked him that earlier about Ninevite, he didn't even respond. He just went out and made him a camp, and he's going to watch the city to see what happened. How come Jonah doesn't answer when God asks him why he's angry about Nineveh, but he's quick to answer when he says, why are you angry about a plant? It seems to me that Jonah has more concern for the plant because it was providing something for Jonah than he did about Nineveh because Nineveh didn't give nothing to Jonah. So he's worried about, he's concerned about the mercies of God as long as he's receiving them, you see. God says to him, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Jonah, obviously he says, I do have good reason to be angry, even to death. And then the Lord calls him to task on this. And this is really where this brings it to a head. Then the Lord said to him, you can imagine how this must have landed. We don't get to hear Jonah's response, by the way. He doesn't record it. And we don't even know that he did. I'd like to think he did. But the Lord says to him, you had compassion, compassion on the plant, which you didn't work for, you didn't cause it to grow, you had no contribution whatsoever in the plant's existence, and you had compassion on it. You felt sorry, sad for the plant. 
The plant was of great blessing to you. You were happy and thrilled with the plant when it lived and it thrived. And you didn't invest a single dime in that plant. You have no investment in the life of that plant. Living or dying, it is not connected to you whatsoever. You have been only a beneficiary of it. And it's gone now and it's dead and you feel compassion for that lifeless plant. You didn't work for it, he says, which you did not cause to grow. It came up overnight and perished overnight. And then he brings it to bear in verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? They're full of images of God. I have an investment in humanity. I have created them in my image for my glory. I have, I have raised them to the place that they are now, and they have defied me, and they've become wicked. I have an investment in humanity here. I, I have something to, to bear. I, some, I am related in this sense to them. You had nothing at all to do with the plant, and you felt compassion on this, on that plant. And I have everything to do with the existence of this people. Everything to do. And this is a vessel in which I have raised up through which I might be glorified either by their destruction for their wickedness or their deliverance as a display of the mercy of God purchased by the cross of Christ ultimately. So I have a vested interest in the reality and the, and the existence of the Ninevites here. So he says to him, should I not have had compassion on Nineveh? You're worried about a plant. And in Nineveh, there are 120,000 human beings. Imagio Deo. 120,000 of them. You're, you're feeling compassion for one plant that you had no investment in that existed overnight and lasted one day and provided some mild comfort for you. And you feel compassion and are even angry at the worm that took out the life of that precious plant to you. There are 120,000 human beings created in the image of God. And not only are they there in their wickedness, they are blinded in their corruption to the point that they don't know their left hand from their right. They are blinded and drowned in the wickedness, in their wickedness to the point of absolute ignorance. And they are destined for destruction if God does not intervene here. And Jonah, you're angry. After feeling compassion for a plant, you're angry because I have shown compassion to these. Here's the interesting thing to me about this passage is it stops abruptly there. We don't know what Jonah thought. We don't know how Jonah responded. We don't know if he got on his knees and understood the message of God here. We don't know if, if Jonah became a faithful prophet from that point on. This is a little window into Jonah's life. And Jonah, and in some ways... Maybe, maybe he is representative of Israel, but certainly is representative of the question that stays before us, even as Christians tonight. Those who, like Jonah, have received abundantly of the mercy of God. Will you now meter it out according to your own preferences? Will you, will you be angry if God extends mercy to a people that you think are undeserving of mercy while you're, while you're while you're happy as you can be with the most, the most minor displays of mercy that bring you some particular comfort. I, I love ministries that support folks who sacrifice and help in the community, but I've always wondered this. Uh, when, churches, when churches 
minister and go to people like uh, uh, first responders and police officers and different ones and churches minister to them. I, I get it and I understand. It's an expression of appreciation. But see, that's a mercy that is directly benefiting us. We are recipients of the mercy of God in providing law enforcement because they protect us. And, and so we have a vested interest in, in acknowledging, thank God for the mercy of, of law enforcement and first responders who contribute to saving our lives. But what about the homeless guy beside a dumpster? You walk by him and do you care? Do you care if the display of the mercy of God rolls into his life? He don't contribute anything to me. In fact, he's a nuisance. He's defecating in the street and, and he's, he's nasty and, and I don't trust him. And I don't even, they're bad representation of our community. And there are people, I think, that don't care if the mercy of God gets extended there, but they love it when it goes to the police officer, and to the fireman, and to the doctor, and to the school system, or to others who are benefiting us in some way. Should we not rejoice if it extends down even through us to the, to the guy beside a dumpster, half-naked, inebriated and defecating on himself. Should he not get mercy as well? Should we not rejoice if God extends mercy to him? Or how about God extends mercy to the man who just the day before would have taken your life in hatred for you and in pursuit of his own lust, fleshly passions? What if God extends grace to him? Or would we rather God just take him off the scene so that we might not have to be harmed by him? This is what really came home to me in the book of Jonah because I realized that in a lot of incremental little ways, I've got a little Jonah in me. I'm a little bit selective of who I think God should give the mercy to. And I have to tell you that when I explored the depths of that, there is this wrong thinking that somehow there is a merit inside of us that warrants God's mercy. And there is not. There isn't. There isn't. You, are as, you, are, you and I are as subject to the fullness of the wrath of God as the Ninevites were and as the, anyone else in this universe that's ever been born as a son of Adam. We are all deserving and not meriting whatsoever the mercy of God. But thank God we know him to be a gracious and compassionate God, long-suffering and willing to relent concerning calamity. And thank God that He is that because if He were not that, you and I would have the calamity yet hanging over our heads. And I don't know how we can honestly and with good conscience think in terms of God withholding that mercy from any person to whom he wills to direct it and how we could find pleasure in that and be angry when he in fact reveals himself to be the very God whom he revealed himself to be to us in his mercy. That's just amazing to me. I want to close with this. Uh, Brother Brian sent me this and just thinking about the book of Jonah, I wanted to share this with you, ask him if I could, but it's a quote from uh, Flavel, the Puritan, if I can get my phone open. <laughs> Hold on. This is what Flavel said in, in thinking about this idea of mercy. Uh, here, you, here you may suppose the father to say when he 
when driving his bargain with Christ for you. The father says this, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son says, oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than thy should suffer it, than they should suffer it upon me. My father, upon me be all their debt. The father says, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The son responds, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove to be a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, for so indeed it did, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Yet, the son says, I am content to undertake it. And this is Flavel's comments. Blush, that struck me, blush, ungrateful believers. Oh, let shame cover your faces. Judge in yourselves now. Has Christ deserved that you should stand with him for trifles, that you should shrink at a few petty difficulties and complain? This is hard and this is harsh. Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this wonderful condescension for you, you could not do it. Man, that is powerful. That is powerful and that captures Exactly what I think the, the mentality of the book of Jonah is saying. And I think it's prophetic in the sense that this mercy that is extraordinarily unmerited is drawn from somewhere. God is not just winking at wickedness. And Romans 3 brings that very clear that Christ was put forward as a propitiation in his blood ultimately to demonstrate the righteousness of God. That God would be both just in his condemnation of sin and the justifier in the same event for those uh, who have been sinners. So this mercy is not free. It's not cheap. It is, it is the very blood of Christ. And for those who are recipients of that, there's a there's a terrible warning here. It's not ours to, to, to meter out according to our own personal preferences. No more than it was someone's to meter out to you. It came to you by God's gracious choice and he will direct it by his gracious choice as well. And if he chooses to do that to a people who we felt like should have gotten judgment, we ought to be reminded that so should I have gotten that judgment. And in some cases, more so. Yet I receive mercy. And now these have received mercy. I really think Jonah should have rejoiced. 
Oh God, you are a just and righteous God. And these people, wickedness, wickedness as wicked as they are, were fully deserving of the fullness of your wrath and judgment upon sin. Oh God, you are the God who is just in their condemnation. But oh, there is something greater here. There is a manifestation of the glory of God in the person of Christ, whereby those sins can be atoned for by this righteous one and the mercy drawn from his atonement applied to their care. Oh God, you are great. How great thou art as we shared this morning. How much greater would Jonah have fared had he thought that way? But it strikes me that we're left without a response from Jonah. Did he think that way? Did he come around? Did he realize the, the mercy of God and the greatness of God? Did he, did, he, did he respond to that in some way? We're not told. All we know that is, at least for this time in history, God relented in the judgment that he had pronounced on the Ninevites. And I think it was left open for a very reason. Because I think it would be, it's left open so that forever as we read this book, the question will bounce into our field as well. And it's an open question for you and I tonight. What will you do? How will you respond? How do these truths shape the way you view not only the, your own mercy, the source of your mercy and how you live out in that mercy, but how does it affect the way you will view God's distribution of that in society, especially among those in our generation who have so, who have so corrupted themselves <clears throat> and have moved so far away, blasphemers in many ways, shall they receive that mercy or have you decided that God ought not to extend that to them even while you enjoy it uh, and the liberty provided by it. That is a sobering question. So stand with me tonight. We have the advantage of uh, hindsight. We can look back on the events in history and and we know that God certainly did relent there. Uh, I was reading an article, uh, and this was striking that I'm sharing with someone this morning, but historically and archaeologically, they believed that prior to Jonah's arrival in Nineveh, they had suffered two plagues, an earthquake, an eclipse almost right on the hills of his coming. And then Jonah gets spit up by a fish on the beach, and he goes into Nineveh declaring the judgment of God. And so I thought to myself, the mercy of God was working way before we even called Jonah. Providentially, through circumstances, perhaps through plagues, through earthquakes, even through an eclipse. And then God sends a prophet onto the scene to let the people know that judgment is pending. Forty days. And God's mercy is operating and brings about repentance. So we have the hindsight to be able to look back and see that God worked that way. But it's an open question for us as well. How will we respond now? in our generation when God extends mercy in directions that we didn't expect and even to our enemies. Uh, you and I were once enemies of Christ as well. Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for your grace. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for mercy. I've been thinking this afternoon even more upon that. As Brian sent that quote, it just really solidified um, my thinking there and oh, how drastically undervalued we hold mercy. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious and grant us a, a fuller understanding, a fuller grasp of the, not only the cost of that mercy, but the glory of it as well. 
Lord, it is true that you would be just in the condemnation of every human being who ever lived and violated your holy character. And an eternal condemnation would be only appropriate for, that, for humanity in that great sin. But Lord, you rescued us from that position by this grace so, so treasured, so valued is the perfect life and shed blood of Jesus Christ that through that instrument you can bring sinners to yourselves. Lord, I pray that you might give us a sense of the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ and that we may go from this place proclaiming and, Father, hoping and anticipating to see a display of that mercy and the glory of Christ on display in our community as you extend mercy to the people here in Ardell County, to the state, to this nation, to our world. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray, and for the glory, for the name, amen.